Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, five wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, and Susan's latest book, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at the Wise Woman University. But you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Rebecca. Good evening, Susan. How are you? I am feeling wonderful. We have come out of our freezing cold, and we had a day in the 50s today. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's funny because it's cold here now, and we had a couple nights of snow. So, Yep. We're (laughs) we're on the opposite. Turn the snow globe over. (laughs) The coast. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody was out and walking their dogs and enjoying themselves and playing with the kids. It looked like nobody was in school. Everybody was just outside going, sun, yes, hooray, whoa, yes, I can breathe again, hooray. Uh, Mm. 
light, such a to see everyone so uh, basking, literally basking in the return of the light. What a special, special lamas um, for this year, huh? Yeah, it was really it was beautiful this year, and like just having the the I did like the sacred space at my house with the women and um, yes, so let everyone. Yes, I thought about that. How did that go? It was really good. I mean, I definitely have my own style. Like, it's funny when I go to other people's, you know, everybody has their their own style, and I, you know, put a lot of intention into it, and I think everybody was really grateful to have that space with that much intention put into it, and um, I really liked it, and I can't wait to do it again. So it was uh, just really nice to have all, you know, it's like getting up in front of all these women, you know, there were... 10 women there and you know they're all women that are in the community that I have a lot of respect for and and so is yeah and just being able to facilitate that space and it's yeah it's really good it's good for me <laughs> it's good for them. so wonderful and this week and next week also we have um to interview and to spend time with women who um have really taken that idea of that specialness of what happens when women gather together and made it their life work. This evening, we're going to be talking with Laura Marie Parker, a birth shaman, sex educator, community-created herbalist, self-published novelist, and the creator of Empowered Woman, and she's the author of No Time Tango. So we're going to have a good time chatting with Laura this evening. Stay tuned. That will be at 9 o'clock my time or whatever time it is your time there. And um, gosh, um, it's almost hard to talk, you know, spending so much time looking at the the book and just being there and working with the words and, you know, down to the, you know, real details of, oh, there's an extra space here. Did you, is there supposed to be a period after this reference here? So it's, you know, so my focus has gotten very, very narrow and, and down and into that. And it's almost like a, like the people coming out for the spring sunshine today to say, oh, hello, everybody. Hi, Rebecca. Here we are. Yes, it's a big world out there, Susan. We're hoping to have reading copies of the book. Our plan was to have reading copies of the book by the beginning of May. Who knows? We may have them sooner. And here's the best news of the week. The International Herb Symposium is very happy to have me as a participant. I would be teaching, but they're very happy to have me there as a participant. Good. I'm so happy to hear that. Me Sounds like too. business as usual is happening and you're going to be, you know, there with the people that love and love you too. So I'm happy to hear that. Me and it's almost Thank Yay. You. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, do you have any big plans for your birthday this year? No. It's an odd no. number anyhow, 73. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and Justine is here for her yearly visit from Costa Rica. We, You know, we do a, a video course every year. <clears throat> and this year we're doing the companion to the book. So like in the book where I say, 
or write out a certain meditation. In the videos, I'm actually doing that meditation for you. Sit quietly, da-da-da. We're going to go on a journey. So we do a shamanic journey. I do a hypnosis session with you. I do some yoga with you, some Tai Chi with you, some Qigong with you. Now we're going into the kitchen for nutrition superstars. Um, so hmm. it's so it, it will be certainly will be a standalone video course, um, but it's also designed to go with the with the book that I'm from finishing. Good, yeah, yeah. I've also been uh, wanting to share more of like uh, meditation practice and stuff like that that I've been doing on social media a little bit just to to I'm trying to hone in on my my teaching skills right now. So. <laughs> Anybody wants to check those out? You know. All right, that's a resolution easily kept. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Improve. Yeah. Yes. So much to share. <laughs> <laughs> and I also made um, a sacred union uh, in honor of kind of like you know sacred union around Valentine's Day kind of thing, and that, that I put up on my Etsy shop that I wanted to let people know about. And uh, they can check that out at www.etsy.com backslash nourish wholeness backslash shop if they're interested in some of the stuff I'm making. All right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Working with some kava kava, and that's that's pretty fun. I actually drank some earlier today, and I was like, wow, this stuff is, I mean, it's just amazing. So, <laughs> oh, the first time I had kava kava, it was in the Pacific uh, Northwest, and we were on a houseboat, and it was a traditional kava kava ceremony, and the whole thing was explained about what a great social bond kava kava can create, and they talked about the people who lived on these islands, right, all throughout the Pacific, and and I imagine, you know, what would it be like to spend your life on a small island living with what, five to eight hundred other people? Mm-hmm. We are so used to just like moving on if we mess up a relationship, yeah. but you cannot move on from that. It's kind it's of like interesting being in one because big extended family, you got to somehow make it okay. And so the way they made it okay was every evening they all sat down and drank kava kava together. They explained this to us and they said, this is your traditional kava kava bowl and this is your traditional kava kava scoop. And you have to take some every time the bowl goes around and you can take as much as you want or you can take as little as you want. Mm-hmm. And I did not ask, was the kava kava made traditionally? You know how it's made traditionally. With just the water and the the, cop, the ground fruit, right? The, no, 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 no. The fresh root is dug, washed, and then women chew the kava kava root and spit it out with their saliva into a vessel where it ferments all day in the sun. Oh, wow. And, of course, hmm. saliva contains an enzyme, ptyalin, that digests the carbohydrates out of it. Hmm. leaving the active ingredients far more active. <coughs> so I didn't ask if it had been made that way, partly because I didn't want to know. 
because mm-hmm. you know I've in a culture where you know you have to be pretty intimate with somebody to share spit, you know just right. just share anybody's spit. Um, in my culture, I understand it's different in other cultures, and you know respect that that I have. You know, my cultural prejudices doesn't mean it's right or wrong. Just, whoops, I'm probably not going to go there. And it didn't look like it was anyhow. It looked like it was made in water. And mm-hmm. we spent, you know, several hours at the Kava Kava ceremony. It was lovely. And I thought, oh, well, that didn't do a thing to me. Until I got up and had to walk a narrow board to get off that boat. Oh! <laughs> it was like everything in the world was moving. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. And, it's you know, I had, um, I had an apprentice here some years back who had been in a car accident. And um, the part of her body that was messed up from the car accident was on the side where you have to turn to milk the goats. So you remember mm-hmm. that the goat jumps up on the milking stand and you sit beside her. And so you have to twist your body to the left to milk. Mm-hmm. And that was very painful for her. So I said, let's see if Kava Kava can help relax that muscle tension. And it did. It worked pretty well, you know, just as a water-based thing. But then I got to thinking about, you know, fermenting it. And I said, let's see what happens if we ferment it. And we made a quart of Kava Kava infusion using an ounce of Kava Kava to a quart of boiling water. But we didn't strain it the next morning. We just let it sit out. And we loosened the lid and we let it sit out until it started to get foamy and bubbly. And she drank that and she said it was one of the strongest muscle relaxants that she had ever experienced. Ooh, I gotta make that. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kava, kava. Of course, there's always the horror story of the person in, in Germany um, whose job it was to buy the right herb, who instead of buying kava, kava root, bought kava, kava leaf and actually put 30 people into liver failure. Mm-hmm. Do be, please do be sure, friends, that you use kava, kava root. This is one time when part of the plant is very, very important because one part of the plant does not work the way the other part does. Yeah, yeah. And I was just writing about, you know, my experience with it and, and the, um, using it without alcohol, too, and having it as an alternative to alcohol and, like, connection to other people is is a is nice for people that don't want to imbibe in, in the alcohol spirits. So that's another thing about Kava Kava that's, that's, a, that's a really good thing. A, a precious, precious gift. It is certainly one of the things that I enjoy very much at the International Herb Symposium um, is our big herbalist ball and where we all drink kava kava and dance all night. And people look at me and say, isn't it a sedative? <laughs> Any herbalist worth their salt knows that a sedative and a stimulant is the same thing. It depends on how you use it. 
Mm-hmm. So sure, yeah, and- you, you take Kava Kava and you want to go to sleep, it can take you off to dreamland. But you take Kava Kava and want to dance all night, believe me, it'll be there for you. Yes. Yeah, I find that it's uh, it's like no matter what you're doing, when you're doing it, it just like gives you a, a deeper feeling of that or I don't that's a good way to say it. It's just like it Probably connects you deeper to... with. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's, yeah it's like a a more new, more nuanced. Really, yeah. Uh, really, a wonderful, wonderful herb. Excellent. So, we um, have just a couple people that are waiting with with questions, and if you have a question for Susan, please press one to speak with her. Are you ready for the first question, Susan? Absolutely. Coming from the 206 area code. Hello. Hi. Hi, Susan. It's so good to hear you. This is Shay, your friend. So good Hi, to hear you. Hi, Shay. Gosh, I haven't Hi. seen you in a little while. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I, um, I've been meaning to call you for a while to ask you for some help with something I'm struggling with. Um, so, you know, I'm a public high school teacher, and um, we had our winter break, and the night before we came back after our week-and-a-half winter break, I was not able to sleep, and I had this insane, like, feeling of itchiness. Because I have a cat, I thought maybe it was a flea infestation. So I did all this stuff to take care of that. I still don't have any evidence of bug bites anywhere. I don't have any fleas. I don't have bed bugs. I don't have anything like that. But I'm still having the itching, and it's sleep. It, I can't sleep at night. So um, I tried getting a humidifier. I tried taking relaxing baths before bed. Then I thought maybe the water was like drying out skin. So I started using various, trying various like herbal salves and coconut oil and different kinds of things to lubricate my skin before bed. And the feeling that I have, it's only when I'm laying down to go to bed. Like during the day, I'm okay. It could be that I'm just distracted during the day because I'm really busy. Um, But as soon as I lay down and get ready to go to sleep, it, it feels like I Sometimes it feels dry and tight and kind of a burning sensation. Sometimes it feels like there are actually like bugs crawling on me. And so this has been going on for a month now. And I'm, I'm at a point of desperation because I, I have to be able to sleep. Um, <clears throat> so I did have some relief. The other weekend, we had a long weekend, and miraculously, it was like Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, and I didn't have work the next day, and I was able to sleep relatively well through the night, Um, but now, like, it's back again, and last night, I was asleep for two hours, and then I was wide awake again, and I can't get back to sleep. Um, I've also tried doing variations to help me relax into sleep. I do yoga. I do all kinds of relaxation things every day. And I just, I just can't sleep and I don't know what to do. So I'm wondering if you have any ideas. 
Well, first, let me ask you how old you are. Um, 42. I'm going to say that this is one of the first flags of menopause to be raised for you. Oh, interesting. Okay. And you are are like um, a a cicada, and your skin is getting too tight for you. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Right? When I, like, feel into you, that's just what I feel like. It's like... I need to molt. Yeah, that's exactly when I do ritual at my altar. Those are the kinds of images that come to me. And it's been like, you know, I've been getting a lot of images around being a snake. And, like, my, I'm, I have to Getting your skin. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Let's. It's a relief to hear you. <laughs> I want to tell you that with a much bigger whine in my voice, I said to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I need to sleep. I must sleep. You're not giving us any time to sleep. I have to sleep. (laughs) And she looked at me and she said, why do you need to sleep? I said, sleep, sleep. Elizabeth, you know, it's like, Food, water, sex, shelter, sleep. It's like up there, you know, it's one of the really important things. She said, nah, sleep is useless for you. You don't know how to relax. And she invited me in that statement to take a look at how many times there are during the day when I could relax. And it may only be for five or ten seconds. But if I can really go all the way down to relax, if I can really get that relaxation response to kick in for me, then in fact, I don't need to sleep. Hmm. I enjoy it. It's a luxury. But if you were to say to me, but Susan, I have to have a hot shower every day, we would both say, you don't have to. Mm. Plenty of people in the world who spend their whole lives without ever having a hot shower. Oh, the blessings of modern civilization. (laughs) 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 Certainly one, you know, wants a certain level of hygiene. (laughs) But that does not require that. So, One of the things that I was taught to do is if you wake up after sleeping for a short amount of time, do not try to go back to sleep. Okay. Do something. Turn on the light. Read a book. Work a crossword puzzle. Write to a friend. Really write with pen. Mm Mm-hmm. Um. Telling myself I'm not going to function well tomorrow because I'm not getting any sleep now is a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Mm, Yeah. I travel quite a bit. And although it's not usual, neither is it unusual if I wind up in a strange place to not 
sleep as deeply as I'd sleep at home or to not sleep at all. Mm -hmm. So what I say to myself in those situations is, ah, you're really taking in the energy and the ambiance of this place. Let that ground you and rest you and nourish you. So taking in the energy of the space that I'm in right now. Yes. And drawing on that. And as yes. you were talking, what I, what came to mind is, you know, I, I'm not somebody who's oblivious to my body, and I don't do intentionally self-destructive things. So if I am treating myself well and listening and I'm not getting the same amount of sleep and as I think I should or or I'm used to getting, I have to trust that my body is going to take care of me and that I will sleep when my body needs to sleep. Like I'm not going to get into some situation that is um, in some way dangerous or health-threatening. Exactly right. It's not like you're pushing yourself or you know, drinking cup after cup after cup of coffee and then saying, oh, somehow I can't get to sleep. No, I I know you, Shay, I know you take beautiful care of yourself. (laughs) And so I trust that um, the need for the grandmother to tend the fire is rising in you. When we lived in Africa, we lived with Animals that preyed on our children at night, hyenas, jackals, lions. And we protected ourselves by having a fire. Now imagine yourself tens of thousands of years ago, a hundred thousand years ago in Africa. There aren't big trees there. You don't have an axe. You're going to be making what we call a campfire with small wood, right? Mm. That means the grandmothers have to wake up over and over again all night long to feed the fire. And when we come to menopause, we spend some time being one of the grandmothers who feeds the fire and waking up over and over again during the night. Yes. That resonates. Yeah. You can, and you can use that as a way to be carried back to that time. Mm-hmm. To connect with every woman who's been awake in the middle of the night to tend the fire. Yeah, I feel, speaking with you, I feel all of these, um, like, walls around me are opening up and falling down. Like this idea that I had of how, you know, just like the ongoing deal with being a woman in our time is like, you know, de defoliating these layers of I should be this way. I need to be this way. This is how I'm supposed to be. And now I, I feel that feeling happening again where it's like, well, wait a minute. Why do I think I need to 
why do, why does my sleep need to look, look a certain way? Why do my waking hours need to look a certain way? If my body is doing this, then I can trust my body. And just that I'm feeling a great sense of ease and liberation just with that realization. And it takes some of that pressure of the anxiety off of me because part of what's been exacerbating the problem, which is kind of what you mentioned, like just this growing anxiety about, oh, I have to function tomorrow. Oh, my God, how am I going to be there for my hundreds of students all day having to answer all of these questions and put out fires and inspire them and hold space for them and, like, be their caregiver if I am not rested. But the truth is I can and I will because, I mean, that it seems like this grandmother need to tend the fire is really coinciding with the height of my work as a teacher right now, which I had never made that connection. Beautiful. Yeah. All right, Susan, I appreciate you so much. I'm grateful for you in the world, and I'm excited that you are going to be participating at the International Herb Symposium. That sounds awesome. Well, come and join us. It is awesome. All right. Okay, good. All right. Love you, Shay. Thanks for calling and sharing with us. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, the next caller is coming from the 718 area code. Hey, Susan, hello. Hi. Hi, good evening. Um, I'm Chloe. I'm a student midwife in Brooklyn, and uh, we chatted before a few months ago about stinging nettles for alopecia. First thing I wanted to do is tell you a little bit more about how that went. Okay, good. Um, thanks. Do you remember? I have I get alopecia areta. I get like little spots of hair loss. Um, yes. I don't really know why. I think it's probably stress related, but I was really trying to do something to prompt the hair to regrow. So I went out and I um, talked with the nettles in the way that you described. I sat with them and I I was breathing with them, doing you know exhaling and visualizing the nettles, um, inhaling the breath that I just exhaled and connecting. Um, and I, I stung my patch of alopecia, which felt a lot like you described, like that kind of euphoric sense of burning because I had so much trepidation about it. And within five days of doing that, the filaments of the nettle weren't long enough to get past the filaments of hair that had regrown to sting my oh. skin anymore. I couldn't reach it. It really oh my gosh. so effectively. And oh, my gosh. <laughs> Isn't that so interesting? <laughs> so I would be, like, pressing it, and my hair would be, like, popping it back up, and I couldn't really use it to sting anymore. So it was great. And thank you. You're, You're welcome. And um, the, thing that I would, uh, the thing I wanted to ask you tonight was I have this beautiful wishy mushroom, um, like a dehydrated full wishy mushroom, and I'd really like to use it um, and I'm not sure what way to approach it. And I'm interested in, in how you prepare Rishi if you're working with it and what sort of things that you find it helpful for or find it works well with you for. The Rishi that I've prepared has always been fresh. Okay. The major difference between fresh and dried is you can cut up the fresh. Mm-hmm. One of my students said, I ordered a reishi mushroom, and I got this beautiful big 
like five inch reishi mushroom. She said, I can't cut it or break it with anything in my house. She said, I hit it with a hammer. You know, I tried, you know, <laughs> the garlic grater. She said, I can't get into it at all. I said, yeah, that's the problem. So, Rebecca, do you work with dried reishi? Yeah, but mine's usually in slices. Or, um, uh, yeah, I was thinking <laughs> as you're saying that if you put it into a big pot, and yeah. then um, you could do like a decoction or just boil it, maybe boil even it, boil it, boil it, boil it, boil yeah. it, boil it, right? But w- once it is dried, if it has not been cut when it was fresh, it's really hard to get anything out of it because it gets so dense. It's like stone. Oh, okay. So maybe just start with boiling it for a really long time and see where that takes me. Yes, exactly. Start talking to that reishi as it's boiling. Say, what else would you like in here? Oh, okay. And do you think you could drink the decoction? Would would the flavor be really pungent from a strong decoction of reishi, or would it be reishi drink? Reishi is fairly bitter. Okay. And depending on, there are, of course, all kinds of grades and qualities and colors of reishi. It's a mushroom, you know, that's been used fabulously as a, you know, adaptogen in China for a long, long, long time. So basically, it's considered an herb of longevity. Mm-hmm. And an herb that increases um, our capacity to work, increases memory, increases sexual interest. It's, you know, as most adaptogens, it makes everything in your life better. <laughs> I know some people boil it and then using grain alcohol, add some alcohol to the water that it was boiled mm-hmm. in to make a tincture. Okay. I don't know if that extracts anything more, but it probably preserves it. Do you in fresh? Of course, we set up and pour the vodka right over it. I see, but not when it's dried out already. It's really probably not a great idea to just put alcohol on it to tincture it because it's how big a piece do you have? It's pretty big. I mean, I I don't know why I bought it. Uh, a few months ago from Mountain Rose Herbs. Um, I think it's like four ounces. Like I hit four ounces of reishi and <laughs> like this enormous, or maybe it's one ounce. It's, a, it's pretty big dried out mushroom. But it will maybe it, Maybe it wants to be in your altar. Maybe. It's That's pretty, isn't idea. it? What oh, color yeah. is it? It's is it a red like reishi? A rich reddish, reddish brown, like dark brownish red. Yeah, it's That's gorgeous. That's a nice one. Yeah. I like yeah. that idea. So, you know, talk to it and see what it wants to do. Does it want to be boiled? Does, do you, does it just want to be, you know, looked at and enjoyed and okay. praised? Okay. Great yeah. idea. Okay, yeah. Susan, well, thank you very much. That's really cool to hear. And, um, yeah, enjoy the rest of the evening. Thank you. Green blessings. Bye. The next caller is coming from the 917 area code. Hello? Hi. Welcome. Oh, wow. Interesting. It said a different area code. That's interesting. 
Um, did you oh, the wrong person? Uh, it actually, <laughs> I actually skipped the 917, but we'll go to her next time because for some okay, reason thanks. I skipped <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm calling uh, about something going on with my body that I need some advice with. Basically, I've had some chronic sinus congestion infection, and it's gone into my ears. And, um, I, you know, I've never had much problem with my sinuses. And when I got the initial, two years ago, I had an initial sinus infection that was astoundingly bad and um, kind of got over that. But I really feel like it's just kind of still there. And um, in the last year, about a year ago, I started having these kind of strange heart palpitations. And I um, have been teasing that out. And I've gotten to the point where I'm not willing to go do the MRI that the doctor cardiologist wants me to do. But he has suggested that it's possible that my uh, my type of palpitation is often um, in otherwise healthy people who are relatively young. I'm 41. Um, he says can be from a lingering respiratory virus or bacteria. And um, he said that my symptom of having shortness of breath coupled with this, you know, somewhat recent history of this traumatic sinus infection um, could be the cause and that, you know, they could properly diagnose me if I wanted to go on and do more tests and that kind of thing. But um, I thanked him very much and moved on. And um, I have been kind of just working with, you know, de-stressing and trying to get more healthy in general and um, recently decided to do like a strong, thorough dose of echinacea just to see if that did anything. And I didn't really realize until I stopped doing the echinacea that it kind of had um, a beneficial impact on the on the palpitations. Um, and then when I stopped the echinacea, I noticed like the fluid in my head kind of started to move. I didn't really notice much benefit when I was taking it for um, the sinus ear infection kind of thing. But then once I stopped it, I realized it was starting to move. And my thought and my, my sort of thinking was about potentially adding a little bit of poke. And um, I just wanted to check in with you about all of that and see if you had any suggestions. Tell me a little more about the original sinus infection and what you did then. So I, um, my father had passed away and I was doing a lot of crying and not really having the proper time and space to actually grieve. And I just was working full time and dealing with life. And I got really sick, um, sick enough that I should have just stopped working, but I didn't. I'm a teacher and I thought, wow, summer's coming and I'll have summer. And then we had more trauma in our family, more stress. Um, I didn't even realize that I had a sinus infection. I was so unfamiliar with them. I actually Google diagnosed myself and, and realized that's what it was. I just was, at that time, the illness had been moving from, like, over the course of three months, it moved, like, from my throat to my chest and my lungs, back up to my to my throat, to my head, and was coming out my nose, and then down to my throat again. And it was just kind of moving back and forth all the time. And then finally it lodged in my sinus and um, 
I took, uh, you know, I had like some fire cider and I was, I started incorporating that and um, just it, I slowly got more rest. Okay. So I want to say right here that as far as I'm concerned, that was a very big mistake. Okay. Tell me why. I personally would never use fire cider and I would never use the plants that are in it. Oh, so just because so those know, are plants that homemade. cause inflammation and they drive infection deep into the tissues. Okay, but it was without any because I made it myself. So it was. But it's not fire it cider, was, is it? Why call it fire I guess cider? Not. <laughs> Inviting you over for <laughs> a fire, right. but there's no fire. Well, it's it's spicy, but you're right. It's not fiery like a pepper. So I what's in directed. it? Uh, what's horseradish, in it? Horseradish. Horseradish, garlic, lemon, onion, and ginger. So you should make up a new name for it because that is not fire cider, is it? No, I suppose not, no. No. So, so it was a vinegar, sort of a vinegar tincture of those yes. fresh materials. Yeah. Um, you know, spicy cider or... Um, Root cider, there's ginger root and onion root and garlic root in there. Mm-hmm. Got so, it. and horseradish root. So there's you got four roots, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm so, I'm glad that there weren't any peppers in it. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't make that clear. Hey, that's okay. But fire okay. cider is a specific thing. Yeah. Um. So. Certainly, I have seen horseradish be very helpful. What, when there's a sinus infection, what you're describing doesn't sound like a sinus infection, though. Well, now it's not. Um, at that time, it was just a copious amount of bright green mucus coming from the back of, you know, like I could suck it down from my sinus or blow it out, and just a lot of pressure and pain. In my head. Okay, well, you did, you said it came up and it went down in your lungs and this, and you didn't say well, anything about the course the head of, or any headache or any yeah. pain at all in your head. Yeah, it was it was definitely in my head, but then okay, that's kind of where it lodged. Before that, it was just like a moving sickness, like I was having, you know, I would have a a deep chesty cough that was producing mucus, and then next thing I knew, I had, you know, and a when you had that, throat. When you had that cough, what did you do about it? Well, I honestly, I didn't do a whole lot because That's okay. it was such a stressful time. Uh-huh. And, um, it was a very stressful time. Ul- I completely understand that. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, I think the reason I got better was because I had school ended and I had time to rest. And um, like I said, there was other things happening in our family that I had been telling myself all these months, just get through school and then you can have all summer to heal and rest and then we had more trauma and drama and um i think i think what happened is it kind of just settled in but at a level that wasn't painful or just stressful to me and i i kind of think it's just been there all like two years you know it's certainly possible it's certainly certainly possible um thinking of an herbalist who's First choice always when there's a, a lingering infection or a deep infection is calendula. Mm. And he really believes that calendula can go to the heart of the matter. 
That's what I need. And if somebody said that they were your friend but kept putting you off, you wouldn't think they were really being friendly, would you? Also think that your body is continuing to ask for your friendship. Mm. Yes, that's very likely, yes. And how wonderful that it hasn't given up on you. All right. I feel right? that. As you, because you keep yeah. putting it off, right? Yeah. Well, the the palpitations definitely got my attention. Yeah. <laughs> and and accompanying chest pain. So it wasn't just a palpitation because I've kind of had that on and off for years. This was different. And so that's why I actually sought out yeah, yes. you know, medical advice. Yes, and that's wonderful. But what I'm saying is that rather than saying, oh, I really have been putting off taking care of myself, I'm going to really need a long vacation. Instead, it became a problem that you were going to fix, mm. which yeah. is actually more being mean to yourself, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make you endure these tests. Thank you for saying no, finally, to the tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because many yeah. of us are lured in by the doctors and the medical profession into this war with our own bodies. And it starts mm-hmm. often with the testing because you have to quell the body's natural disinclination to be done to that way. Mm-hmm. Most of the time if the doctor is saying, let me do this to test you, they're doing something that in normal circumstances you wouldn't agree to have done to you. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and we rarely make it up to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so a war develops between our beings and our bodies, where our beings are going to make our bodies behave, and our bodies are going screw you. <laughs> you take better care of me. I'll behave. You keep treating me like this. Watch what I can do. Mhm. Yeah, I really have arrived at that conclusion. I think, you know, it's been like I say, it's been going on for a couple of years and more acutely in the last year and I've I definitely sort of put my foot down and I worked, started working half time at the beginning of the school year and yes. that just wasn't Yeah, it wasn't financially feasible, so this I understand. Really understand. Yeah. So, but but you said to your body, "Look, I, look, I'm going to give it a try." Mm-hmm. And then you said, "Okay, this is very restful. Shall we starve to death?" And your body said, "No, let's work some more. We don't want to starve to death." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> no, 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 no. Good try. And you know. Gosh, even with a friend, like, you know, we'll, we'll let some pretty bad behavior go if they'll make an honest effort. Mm-hmm. You made that honest yeah. effort. And you can continue to. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard me talking to the woman before about relaxing, even if it's just for five seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is very important to RX for you. 
I, Patch Adams has just appeared here over my shoulder, and he says <laughs> she ha- she needs some laugh therapy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can do passive laugh therapy. You get a funny movie and you sit there and, and you watch it and you laugh. You can do active laugh therapy where you actually go, ha, 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 he, 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 ho, 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 ha, 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 ha. And you have, you have to have a clock and you have to do it first for a minute uh-huh. and then for two minutes. And you're going to work your way up to five minutes of laughing. Okay. Okay? I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. All right. Patch is happy. Thank you, Patch. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, you're not. So, some calendula, calendula tincture. Um, Uh When you said you did like a real uh, honest dose of echinacea, that was one dose? I was doing uh, three to four dropperfuls every two to three hours. Okay, good. So, it wasn't just one dose. No, no, no. Right. I. But I wanted yeah. to just check and be be sure because you had said it, just one. I didn't think that that's what you meant, but um, I tend to believe what people say, so I need to. Yeah, thank you. To check it out, if I'm not going to believe them. <laughs> yeah. um, I did that for about a week mm-hmm. um, before I kind of felt like, well, I should be seeing a little more something happening by now. But then, like I said, afterwards, my my heart pounding heart thing kind of came back a lot stronger. Right, and you I say, "Hey, wait a second, this echinacea really was doing something," you know. I think um, it might have been. Yeah. I don't think I don't think really that we can overdo it with echinacea. There are okay, great. studies that have been done when people take, where people take quite a bit of it for quite a long time. So, I think that that's okay. That we don't have to worry if we do that. Um, and if you you know. Take it away, and then you say, "Oh, wait! I notice, you know, that that I was feeling better with it." Then certainly that makes good sense to to go back, and certainly mm-hmm. echinacea and calendula work just fine together. Okay. How much um, calendula? Calendula tincture, yes, the beautiful bright so how, yellow flower of calendula. And how much of that would? I'm not. I've never used it as a tincture, so I don't know how Ask, much. Ask the uh, the calendula, right? You know, starting dose is usually a mill or a dropper full. But sometimes, mm-hmm. especially because you're going to be using the echinacea as a primary antiinfective, so you may not need a lot of calendula. If you were just mm-hmm. using the calendula and not the echinacea, it might be different. You might need more. Okay. Would you think I should try just calendula, or um, go think, ahead and and add will, it? with it and work with it and you'll get a feeling of where you need to go with it. Okay. Yeah. It's. Uh, I find that most people are very intuitive about what herbs they need and the dosages if they let themselves be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you say, hey, help me out here. I'm not quite sure, you know. Um, should I do just one of you? Should I do both of you? How much should I take? They're happy mm-hmm. to answer. Well, this is why I called you about the poke, because I have some, but I've never used it. <laughs> so I'm uh-huh, not uh-huh. allied. I'm not familiar. Right. You well, know, with, with, with the with usual it. starting doses, one drop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, 
But I feel like my question about poke is more of the going to battle with the body than than befriending it. So I agree <laughs> I with I'd you. Rather, I'd rather try the calendula, I think. The calendula, yes. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very You're much. You're welcome. Take good care of yourself. Great right. blessings. I will. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Back to the 917 area code. Hello. Hi. Hello. Uh, thank you for taking the call. You're welcome. I'm, I'm calling on behalf of my son, who's seven, um, and we've been trying for since last June uh, to kind of get a handle on what I believe is um, an asthmatic cough that kind of developed overnight, um, or it seemed to develop overnight Um, and it comes in waves and I've gone through lots of different um, ways of trying to treat it. Um, It still can come back though, you know, so I haven't figured out how to, what it is that's bringing it on and how, how to just sort of get rid of it completely. But I'm also just trying to play around with different types of, um, remedies um and the one i did find one that worked well but it's uh, a combination tincture and i'm not sure i know in the past you i think made some comments about combining tinctures together and it might be best to um, work with them alone um well and the it, you know, yes go ahead here's the deal if you use a combination tincture and you get good results with it it kind of stuck. Yeah. Because it's harder to replicate. Right. So, so the one I was, that's been working... I was speaking to a student from Australia this morning, and she was very upset because the laws have changed in Australia. She said she can't buy herbal tinctures. They have to be prescribed by a doctor. I'm not, you know, totally sure that this is all completely true, but this is what she was telling me. It's now become almost impossible to get herbs in Australia. And I said, that's why I always teach people not to depend on a product you have to buy. I'm not against products. I'm not against combination tinctures. I'm against your crawling out on a limb that somebody can saw off. Because I did it. They sawed it off. They sawed the limb, and I'm, wow, I went crashing to the ground. And instead of getting up and climbing the tree and crawling out of another limb, I said, I'm just going to stay on the ground. I'm going to devote my life to working with common plants that everybody can find and that they w- that no law and no government can prevent us from using. But that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with a combination tincture. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about the cough? Is it a dry cough? Is it a productive cough? Is it worse at night? Uh, I would say, I don't know. I would say it's it's dry because it's only because it's not productive and it's hard and spasmodic. It's forceful when he does get it, and it sort of will go on in in phases, and then it'll be gone. You know, for for weeks we won't hear it, or a month. But then when it comes, it's sort of constant throughout the day until I, until I, you know, give him something. 
Okay, so when he's coughing, is it like, <coughs> or is it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first one. But it okay. can be a, a two or three hard coughs, but then it will be, um, it could be then three times in one minute. Okay, so a cough hard enough to, like, turn his face red? Yes, and his sort of his whole body is into it. All right. His, yeah, it's forceful. Yeah. The herb and, that herbalists and, use to stop messages from getting through the cough center is wild cherry bark. And it turns off coughs at the source. Use wild cherry bark tincture, and the word is you simply can't cough. It's not safe to use if it's a productive cough, if the body's actually trying to cough something up. It's not safe to use if you're an older person and that cough might be a symptom of some deeper, more dire problem. But we're going to, for better or worse, throw out emphysema and lung cancer here is not likely diagnosis for what's going on with your son. So in this situation, it should be pretty safe to use wild cherry bark and just turn that cough off. Your son is also old enough to eat honey. And honey is a cough. Mm-hmm. We've tried you, that. Uh, I'm sorry. And I did try the wild cherry bark, but I did it as a decoction. I didn't try tincture. The tincture, yeah. I think the tincture is, is usually the, the thing that will really do it. I personally, like mullen. Mm-hmm. We did try that. I did not have luck with it. I tried and, it for co- and did you use mullen leaf tincture? You know, I didn't see if it was the leaf. I just, I don't recall. I'd have to look. I still have, I have my notes, but I don't, it, I don't remember what was in, what was in the bottle. Yeah. Um, that makes a difference if it's the leaf or the. Yeah. Flower. Okay. Yeah. Um, what I did find, can I tell you what did work? Is I think it's. Please. Tr- thank you. It's this combination tincture of lobelia and skunk cabbage and skullcap. But then there's also black cohosh and myrtears and cayenne pepper, which bugs him a little bit. So we have to put loads of honey in it. Um, but as soon as he takes this, within a minute, the cough stops. So what I started doing was I wanted to see um, after using this for a couple of months and the bottle was empty, I wanted to try pulling out one of these. So I started with just the skunk cabbage and I felt really good about it, but it it hasn't done a thing. So that's sort of why I got a little disappointed and was looking for some guidance because I was hoping that the skunk, ca- the skunk cabbage alone might help. And I don't know how you feel about, doing skullcap alone or lobelia alone for extended periods of time for a child? I'm not sure why suddenly it's an extended period of time. You said the cough would come and go. Because I, it, it, when it comes on, it's usually here for maybe like a week. That's not and an then, extended period of time. An extended period of time is six months or more. Okay. So, 
skullcap sounds to me like the herb that is probably having the most effect. Your child is seven. He's in second grade. Yes. And he's been coughing like this since first grade, kindergarten. It came on uh, end of in end of June, so it was after school ended. We were traveling. School we were in, uh, yeah, and that, and it yeah, it was at the end of the last school year. It started sort of right after school ended. I often, when a child has a chronic cough, um, ask myself, what's going on at school? Some children have difficulties at school that they find impossible to talk about. And that translates itself into... (coughs) (coughs) This may not be the case for your son. Certainly worth pursuing a little. Thank you. Yeah. Especially because it's something that comes and goes. Mhm. Mhm. And the environment hasn't changed, so I have been wondering what what is the deeper issue here. Yeah. So, and that's yeah. why I think the skullcap is what's affected because the skullcap is calming. So what I'm going to suggest is a little outrageous. But let's see what happens with it. Rather than pursuing herbs with your son when he starts to cough, what would happen if you said, ah, there's that cough again. Let's see what happens if we sit and do a breathing exercise. Let's see what happens if we sit and meditate. Let's see what happens if we put on this DVD of Qigong and follow it. I want something a little more physical for him because my sense is that he has some growing physical needs that he doesn't know how to express and how to work out. Am am I making any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. You are welcome. And if you had a one-ounce bottle and it took you how long to finish it off? I would say... Two months. That's very little herb that you're using. And we kind of circle back to nothing wrong with the combination, but what's wrong with the combination is there's cayenne in it. He doesn't like the cayenne. You use something that's effective and then you're stuck with it. And I it praise you wonderfully for seeing. oh, will this thing work individually? Where were you able to get tincture of skunk cabbage? It's a very odd herb. It is. I'm surprised they had it. Uh, herb Farm made it, makes herb it. Herb Farm made it. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. 
So you, you know, what you could also do is buy each one of those tinctures and give him the combination minus one of them. Mm-hmm. Rather than giving him the individual tinctures. And see if there's some effect. Lobelia is, a, is another very odd herb. And it's not used very much in modern herbalism. Um, it was called pukeweed or Indian tobacco, and it's used a lot by the heroic practitioners because it would make people throw up. Yeah. And then when they stopped giving it in doses large enough to make people throw up, they said, oh, it makes the other herbs work better. No, it doesn't make the other herbs work better. <laughs> Skullcap, skunk cabbage, black cohosh. Black cohosh is an antispasmodic. It stops spasms anywhere in, in the muscles in the body. But it's also a home hormonal herb. Mint is an antispasmodic. So you don't need to necessarily use a hormonal herb for a seven-year-old boy to stop the spasm. I'm trying to mem- remember what else you said was in there. Skunk cabbage, lobelia, skull cap. Uh, black hosh, myrrh tears. Myrrh. Myrrh is an anti-infective. It, it tastes very bitter. Okay. That, that so wouldn't be needed. That's why I'm saying I think that probably if if we have to if we're just going to pick one, I would say skullcap. Okay. But seriously, think about doing something more body-centered and investigate calming herbs. And if you find one that you think, you know, it doesn't have to be skullcap. It could be lemon balm. It could be lavender. It could be motherwort. Again, the whole mint family really has a lot to offer your son. If you find an herb that's calming for him, he should have a bottle of the tincture that he can keep on himself or in his room that he can dose whenever he wants to. He doesn't have to get to the point of coughing. He's right in an age where his being responsible for himself becomes far more important. Yeah, good point. It's hard for us as parents to keep stepping back, but that's that's the work. Yeah, I'm going to have to think about this. <laughs> you know, from the age of this. on, Aboriginal children have to hunt, gather, and harvest all of their own food. They're not fed by the parents. From the age of three on, do we do our children a service by doing everything for them? Or do we prevent them 
from experiencing their own self-worth. Point. And here Thank you, you, Susan. Here you thought it was just a cough. Thank you for your <laughs> thank you for your deepness. I really appreciate your your question and your listening. Thank you, Susan. Thanks to you. Have a good evening. Good night. Dream blessings. Good night. Holy smokes! It's almost twenty of nine. We're at our last twenty minutes. How many callers do we have waiting? We have one person with their hand raised. If you have a question for Susan, you need to press one to ask your question. So, looks like we have plenty of time. Okay, good. All right. Coming from the 504 area code. Hi, Susan. Hi. I wanted to ask you a question and how you felt about root canals. I recently um, watched a documentary and it's probably the worst thing I could do because it just had terrible information about them. And I do have two of them and I was just wondering how you felt about them and what I can do to, I guess, protect myself. Well, let's just go over the basics here. A tooth has a root. The part of the tooth that we see is less than half the tooth. So we see the top part of the tooth, and then down into the gum and going into the jaw are the roots of the tooth. The tooth is covered with a hard enamel to protect it and to protect the root. And there are blood vessels and nerves that go through the root to keep the tooth alive. Disease bacteria that cause cavities live in the mouth. And those bacteria can erode the enamel and cause cavity, causing bacteria to get in past the enamel and into the softer part of the tooth where it begins to erode the tooth. Should those bacteria erode the tooth up to the place where the blood vessels and nerve endings are, but not into that space, then that tooth can be simply filled. The part that has been destroyed by the bacteria can be drilled away, and something can be filled in there. But once those bacteria get into the place where the nerve endings and the blood vessels are, it becomes very dangerous and very difficult infection to deal with. Those infections can travel through the bloodstream to the heart. They can actually cause mm-hmm. heart, heart attacks. Yes. So what I feel about root canals is <clears throat> do your homework so you don't have to have one. But if you have to have one, you have to have one. Okay. <clears throat> no, any dentist who just casually says, go get a root canal. They consider it a severe and heavy thing. So I had crowns placed on my teeth, and the dentist, before he did the crown, said, hey, I really need to do this root canal because... Wait, 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 wait. You had crowns. You, inert, passive being, were 
tied up and taken to the dentist where they put crowns on your teeth. You didn't ask for them. You didn't go to the dentist. Yes, I did. Ah, well, let's have a little self-respect here, okay? Because okay. I had crowns placed on my teeth. Sounds like somebody else's idea, yeah? Yes. No, it was your idea. And you had these crowns on your teeth because the teeth needed these crowns? So what happened is my jaw is canted. So the one, on one side of my teeth, they'll, they would make contact and touch when I chewed. And on the other side, they would not. And so the dentist suggested that the only way to get that to happen would be to crown the tooth and add, you know, the material at the top to where it would make contact with the bottom tooth. So let me ask um, you, was this a mm-hmm. problem for you that your teeth weren't contacting all across your mouth? Most people only chew on one side at a time. And that is what I was doing. I was chewing on one side at a time, which what created, most, I guess. It's, I don't know anybody who chews on both sides at the same time. Okay. Problem for you? Um, it was it was pretty much it, it it was dramatic enough. You know what I mean? It wasn't just like a tiny bit. It was like if I smiled, you could see it almost looked like a crooked, you know, like kind okay, of. A, so it was more than just the chewing. Right. It was both. Um, All right, I completely understand how how we look. It's very important, and it's important to all of us. And so so you chose this to improve your chewing, but also to really look well. Yes. Yeah, both, for sure. Yes, absolutely. Of course, we all want to look well. So both the upper and the lower teeth were crowned? Only the upper um, eight, because he said he couldn't just do one side. He had to do the front eight so it would look uniform and appropriate, was what he suggested. The front eight, starting from where? In other words, the two front teeth and the two next to that and the two next to that? I thought we were talking about molars. I thought we were talking about chewing. No, it was. It was the front eight. The front eight, which has very yeah. little to do with chewing. The um, front eight just on the top. Yes. Correct, yes. Yeah, none of those are molars. It's not going to improve your, your chewing at all. But that's okay. It's already done. But just to say. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> It's All right, too, but I know what you mean. Well, I, I was there then a problem too. after you got the crowns? Was there any? No. There was no problem with the crowns? I mean, it was a traumatic, it wasn't as easy of a procedure as I thought it would be. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was a lot of soreness and inflammation in the gums and that kind of thing. But it didn't lead to a root canal because generally we don't do root canal in those teeth. Okay. Root canals are usually done in molars. Do you know what I mean? The molars are the large teeth in the back of your mouth where you chew. Yes, I know what you're saying. 
And this so if is you're the eating an apple, juice. you use the front, mm-hmm. the ones that were replaced with crowns, and you bite the apple. Ah, those are called the tearing like, teeth. So you bite the apple and you tear off a piece, and then you put it to the back of your mouth and you grind it between your molars. Okay. So generally, the teeth in the front don't need root canals. It's the molars that need root canals. Okay. If needed. So you had root canals at the same time as the crowns or after the crowns? Are they connected to the crowns? The one that he suggested was at the same time because he said if he were to ever if it the tooth ever needed the root canal after it would be it would maybe crack the crown. So he said that I should do it with the that was his suggestion. Like, hey, let's do this. And this was the farthest back tooth. No, this is like if you look at your mouth, the two front teeth, this is the one right to the right of the front teeth. Or, you know, left or right. I guess it doesn't matter. Gotcha. The one Bad. right next I understand. to the, the one, one over from there. Exactly. Yes. So you did that? Yes, I did that. And so far, so good. No problems with it. Um, n- I mean, not that I can tell. Sounds good to me. I can't see that there should ever be any problem with it. Okay. I don't really think that the movie you watched was a documentary. I think it was a horror movie. (laughs) It really did seem like it was, to be honest. You know, 100 years ago, most people, by the time they were 30 or 40, didn't have any teeth left at all. Right. Yes, I've heard you say that before. Modern dentistry is strongly linked to our increased longevity. Mm-hmm. So, again, let's all do our homework, brush and floss, right. so we don't have to have root canals. But if you didn't do your homework, right. then thank goodness for modern dentistry. Changing yourself to look your best is never going to be pleasant or easy. Right. But I don't think you hurt anything or ruined anything. Okay. Which is, I think, what you're asking me. Yes, exactly. I apologize that it took me all this time to figure that out. (laughs) No, I'm I'm sorry. I wasn't more clear. That's okay. (laughs) It was just the things that they have done anything. Anything that is going to have any bad repercussions at all. No, I think you have taken good care of yourself. You feel better about how you look? Yes, it definitely looks better when, you know, you smile, smile. that kind of thing. Right. That's what we wanted. We wanted you to feel better about how you looked. When you speak, you know, you can see now both sides, which was the point. You know, it was um, exactly. I had a tooth that was like attached to bone or ankylosed, and I think that's what created the problem in the first place. There you go. Which is what you know called for the crowns, and then the root canal, and then right. me just being, I guess, concerned about the things that I hear about them, and just wanted to clarify with you if you thought that that was an issue, and if it was, it's not what I could do. And it. it's not, okay. and there's no taking it back. It's kind of like saying. 
Right. Golly yeah. gee, I'm seven months pregnant. Should I have any concerns? <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, no but you're seven months pregnant. You're not taking it back at this point. Right. Yes. Be be okay with yourself that you did it. It's okay. We don't have to second guess ourselves. Okay. All right. You did good. I appreciate and that. There's no backs on a root canal. Okay. It's not like you can go to the dentist and say, I take it back. I don't want you to have done a root canal. It's done. No, and what the documentary suggested to clear up this man's health was they extracted the tooth. Right. <clears throat> and that was like his only option. So and then what? More, you know, I, I know. Mean, oh, my gosh, right. Now we are really like making the whole thing worse, aren't we? Agreed. It seems that way. Yeah. Okay. So um, we certainly I don't. Think it could just be anxiety. We do not you want know. to be extracting your teeth unless there is a grave need to do that. And in okay. fact, that's why they do root canals. Because if they don't right. do the root canal, they will have to extract that tooth. Right. Exactly. They're trying to save the. They are tooth saving the tooth. Modern dentistry does its very best to save the tooth, right? Brush and floss, do your homework. Don't have to have a root canal, but if you do, it's okay, right? It's okay, and it won't be a long-term issue. No, absolutely not. <clears throat> okay, it was something about the bacteria not being able to, your immune system to access it because it's like a dead limb or something. I mean, I, I don't know the specifics. Sure. Did I say that a infection in the pulp of the tooth where the blood and the nerve is is a very hard infection to heal? Yes. That's you why did. we do root canals. Right. Now, are you, you have that in the first place. that the dentist mm-hmm. who did the root canal did it in unsterile circumstances? Of course not. I would not. hope not. <laughs> of course <laughs> not. You would think not. The dentist exactly. washed his hands. He used sterile gloves. He used, you know, he took all right. appropriate care. Right. Okay. So I don't think that we need to hypothesize that there's any bacteria in there. The point of the root canal is to get okay. all the bacteria out. Got it. A drill is used, irrigation is used to clear all bacteria out of that area so that it stops right. causing a problem. Okay. Let's envision that. I, I'll, I'll love to. Sounds good to me. Thank all you. All right, good. Sounds good to me, too. I, I appreciate <laughs> Thanks it. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. Okay, we did have one person queue up with a question from the 608 area code. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi, my name is Fern. Um, I'm calling because I have recently, um, I believe, am in premenopause, and I have just purchased your um, new menopausal years book, and I'm just starting to read um, a friend of mine made the suggestion of taking a uh, progesterone cream and I know very little about it and I'm just wondering what your opinion is on it. I know it's not in your book. Uh, I know she's going to ask me if I want it <laughs> in a few days. So I'm just wanting to know what your wisdom is on that. Are we talking about wild yam cream or cream that actually has the active hormone progesterone in it? It is um, wild. It has wild yam cream in it. Okay. Wild yam cream is not progesterone cream. 
There is no <laughs> study of any kind that shows that there's any progesterone in wild yam. Okay. Okay. So I'm not exactly sure how you can make progesterone from wild yam. You can do that. That's true. But it isn't progesterone on its own. Correct. Right? Yeah. Will your body... It, it, progesterone cream is in my book one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times, including a two-page spread, 143 to 144. I just wanted to correct this, where you said it, progesterone cream is not in your book. Progesterone cream, page 143. Overblown claims for natural progesterone have been made by people with financial interest in selling this product, says the National Women's Health Network. How did I miss that? I specifically looked right as you were. I'm like, oh, well, maybe. I don't page 143. Do you have the book? I see it right here now. Yep. Right? Okay. Right? Step zero do nothing. Lancet reported 20 women who used four. Two to four times the amount of progest cream suggested on the label absorbed virtually no progesterone. Mm-hmm. Well, rub something on your body. Coconut oil is great. Olive oil is great. Right? Women who use progesterone cream, real progesterone creams, are participating in one of the largest unsupervised trials of hormone use ever conducted. Wow. So hormones are safe, right? Yeah. No. A chemical process, and I quote, completely unrelated to biochemical processes, turns wild yam roots into natural progesterone. Dr. John Lee, who popularized this, says, I quote, in the laboratory, diocegenin is chemically synthesized into real human progesterone. Is there anything wrong with that statement? Well can't turn into <laughs> it can't be synthesized into real can it yeah right exactly whoa progesterone means pro for gestation pregnancy you're going to get pregnant you need more progesterone I do not need more progesterone no you do not progesterone promotes the rapid growth of cells especially in the breast So the concern was I've had um, 12 children. I've birthed mm-hmm. 12 children, and she believes uh, – she uh, – I don't even know what she went to. Is there anything that would – I'm going to just skip what she said. Is there anything that would lead you to believe that menopause would be more uh, difficult for a woman who has birthed more children? Less difficult. Less difficult. Well, that's good to know. Far. <laughs> Far, far less difficult. You may hardly even notice. Well, I haven't had a cycle in um, eight months now. I'm 44. Um, I started cycling when I was um, just shy of 10, so I was very young. So I started early. I figured I would maybe go into menopause early. Um, I don't really feel <clears> – <throat> I get some hot flashes here and there, but really I take care of myself well. You just um, proved my point. Here you are, eight months into menopause, and you haven't noticed a thing. Yeah. Because compared to being pregnant 12 times, it's nothing. 
I mean, yeah, you know, a little bloating, a little this, a little discomfort, a little that. Sure, but we've been there 12 times already. Yeah, and I don't notice, like, real um, hormonal issues like everyone says I might go through, and I and I don't listen to that. Women make 30 kinds of estrogen. We are born making 29 kinds of estrogen, and we die making 29 kinds of estrogen. At puberty, the 30th estrogen, estradiol, starts being made. At menopause, we stop making that one estrogen out of 30. Mm. You're not going to lose estrogen. Yeah. You're not on some hormonal roller coaster. No. Your hormones are changing. You're becoming a woman who holds her wise blood inside so that you have time to do something other than give birth to 12 children and take care of them. We're the only mammal on this planet that has its female stop giving birth at the high point of their intellectual capacity so that we can take care of the rest of them. Yeah. Well, that is great. That is that is um, exactly what I wanted. You know, I it wasn't necessarily to convince myself that I didn't need to. I just thought, you know, I, I knew this wasn't something I wanted to take, but I wanted, like I said, your wisdom on it. And I don't know how I missed that. I... I don't, I mean, maybe I'm tired today, but <laughs> okay. I, I look at the it. index because I do the index. So I know it's a really good index. So I always look yeah. in the index in my book. Cause I know if I well, want to find something in my book, it's going to be in the index. You know, I must've just missed it. I don't know what I did. Okay. <laughs> right there in the index, progesterone cream. Yep. I see it now. <laughs> good. I'm so glad you called. Thank you so much. Yeah. What a delightful time so talking Thank to you. you. And I would like to introduce now Laura Marie Parker. She is a birth shaman, and she brings a host of important complementary medicines to birth and to families, whole health. She teaches about herbs as people's medicine. She works with story medicine, and she wants individuals to have their own unique, empowering journey through birth. That's why she's a wise one sex educator. And of course, she's the author of The No Time Tango, a traveling memoir, and a monthly herbal zine called Tales from a Gypsy Mama, which weaves the wisdom of herbal medicine and folk wisdom with her journey through life and her mothering of three boys. Laura knows that nourishment is life. What we choose to nurture and nourish becomes the environment we live in. In honor of nurturing her vision for making her world a better place to live, she created The Empowered Woman, a nourishment series of classes and services for maiden, mother, and crone. She wants to inspire women to deeply nourish themselves and to write their own stories. Welcome to the show, Laura Marie. Thank you. Hi, Susan. We're so honored to have you here tonight. 
Oh, thank you. Before I forget, happy birthday in a few days also. Oh, thanks, Eddie. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. in Aquarius too, so. Oh, <laughs> when was your, when your birthday? January 26th. January 26th. Well, happy birthday to you. A week back. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, we, I always ask people to give me questions so that I can ask them questions. So I don't have to just make up a question because some of these people, like, like Laura Marie, I don't know or know very much about. And the question that really like stood out for me here is what is your great realization about receiving versus pushing babies into the world? Now maybe we don't want to start there. Maybe there's like what? It's like starting in the middle of the story season. I know, like Aboriginal people do. Um so, you know, maybe you should just like, tell us a little bit about how you came to have three boys and be a gypsy mama. But this I want, a great I want way you to, to start at some length about <laughs> pushing and, and receiving at any point. Yeah, I actually, I think that was one of just one of the beginning um, realizations that I had when I was giving birth to my third baby. All three of my births were very different. And the first one, um, I went to the hospital, which I wasn't expecting, and I had to sort of heal a lot through that but not but it, it it was an interesting thing because I I saw that it was I was choosing to be there and I was choosing all of the things that I chose and I felt like I found my a big part of my voice there because I was like I want this episiotomy <laughs> I don't want to tear you know down to my asshole essentially and uh, my my second birth was this really empowering visualization birth. And um, I sat under the moon at the same time, like three in the morning, I think probably uh, for three months when the moon was up at the same time. And it was actually when I gave birth and I, it was like, there was something about that experience that integrated the story into my being that allowed me to see that I could place and manifest this this like birth at night under the moon and um and that's like just has so much more of a beautiful story to it but then with my third birth um I really found my rhythm and and the sound that came out of me and it and I think one of the main things was that I was really safe in this cave and um it was like the cave of my home, but I felt like I was in this kiva and I was, I had had this ceremony with a bunch of women beforehand and they blessed the space. And I felt, I just felt so sort of like I was in a circle of, of spirits that were protecting me. And, um, and I was really able to relax into my contractions in this way that I, I realized that for so many years growing up, there was this, image that I would see on movies and in media and everything else that was these women that were really stiff and they were really, they would say no a lot and they would kind of clench up and they would, and then they would be told to push the baby. And, and I, and I was like, this is, this is not right. This is the opposite of what we're doing. We're not really pushing. I mean, we do push, right? There's like that one moment where we push, but the rest of it is this experience of, just receiving the pulses and the contractions and the rhythm 
and the sound. And then, of course, just letting come out, right? So it was this relaxing in and breathing in and um, also breathing out (laughs) so that, and I think the, um, you talk sometimes about when people are, are in asthma attacks um, and how instead of breathing in, you actually breathe out and then your body sort of like brings the, the breath back in. And so I think it's sort of similar to that where instead of pushing to make something happen, like, you know, like, like inhaling or like bringing this big breath in, you just actually kind of like hang and let your breath go out and then let the natural reflexes take over. So I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but um, I, I really felt strongly that I, one of my life missions is to, to address this idea of, of relaxing and receiving and think about like even just receiving gravity and receiving the, the experience and um, not fighting against it as much. Yes. We live in a culture in which the only thing that's valued is work. Right. And so giving birth has to be work, be valued. Right. Mm. Right. It's like, I love that. Yeah, that's my problem with, like, dream work. Like, dream work? Hello, I don't even get to sleep anymore? Right. I even have to work while I'm asleep? I mean, I do dream work. <laughs> I'm a little bit. But I, <laughs> but I recognize that my culture is, you know, like, so focused on the work. And I think it's so important for there to be voices that say, hey, hey, wholeness means non-work, too. Wholeness means... Let go and live. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that reminds me of my, my sister-in-law. She had three boys before me. Well, she had two, and then I had one, and she had her last one. But she came from a Chinese culture um, and was actually born in China and moved to New York. And, um, and it was so interesting to me because she, her mom came and stayed with her for two or three weeks after each baby. And I remember her telling me this story about um, how she didn't leave the house for three weeks. And her mom came and, you know, took care of the babies or cooked the food and did the things. And she just laid in bed with the baby, let herself heal. And then she told me about how she remembers the day she stood at her door and, like, walked out for the first time. And she was like, it was a whole new world. And she kept, you know, and then the opposite part of her was that she grew up in New York and she, you know, I remember her telling me this story about how she was just really sick a lot because she was just working all the time. And this was such an opposite experience for her to become a mother and to slow down and to become receptive and, and vulnerable and like female. (laughs) And, and it's like, I like the work of being out in the world, but, but especially when we become mothers, we, we, I think we, I think women go back to work, um, like they go away from their babies so quickly. Um, yeah, if I'm out and, in the woods, what is the most fierce animal in the woods? Uh, the bear or the cougar? Mother anything. <laughs> mother anything, right? <laughs> A mother anything. I do not understand how being passive is female. 
Oh, that's true. That's true. Not. And female right. is very active quality. It's not passive in the least. Right. When men go Actually, out to hunt, what do they do? They sit and drink whiskey and That's smoke right. cigarettes. They sit in one place for hours and hours and hours. Mayo right. is the passive waiting. And yeah. female is the active gatherer. Oh, I love it. I just told my friend Layden this the other day because she said, this year, I, you know, I've been, I've been so kind of slow and I had this brain injury and I wasn't, you know, doing a lot for a few years. And so this year I'm going to make money and I'm going to go out and I'm going to like touch in with my masculine. And I said, I don't think it's the masculine. I think it's, you're tapping into your powerful female. <laughs> this is like, this is not, No woman you know, has a masculine. We have XX right. in all of ourselves. There's no right. And I, I, I even quoted you. I said, it's yeah. just, like, we don't, we don't need that masculine part. Like it's, it's, it's not that we, we don't need it. it. We don't have it. We are whole. X, X, double X. Double X. Double X. Every one of ourselves is double X, woman, woman. There is nothing you can do that is masculine. I'm writing that one down. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you've been present when women have been giving birth. The power of a woman giving birth who feels safe and supported it's astonishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's in that context of the woman who is, feels powerful because she's safe and supported, who then we can say, let go. Right. So well, you work as a birth shaman? You attend births? So I, I'm more, I don't attend births. I actually. But it sounds. Um, so, I, but th- that was kind of a, a sneaky question because what I wanted to yeah. get back to was it sounded okay. to me like you believed all women needed episiotomies at birth. No, I I didn't. I, okay, because so that see. was a pretty horrible thing that you said about that. Oh yes, give me an episiotomy <laughs> so I don't rip back to my anus. What? Right. Okay. It's a very so rare woman who will rip, and if she's ripping, it's because her birth care is not good. Right. Well, I guess what I meant is that I saw that I made that choice and not yes. necessarily because I would have, right? But that it it was important for me to realize that I made the choices that I made when I was there, even yes, though I they didn't, weren't. didn't want women I going off thinking, I need to have an episiotomy or I'm going to rip myself to shreds. Right, right, right. right, right. And, they and pushed I, and my I baby's I, head back in my vagina to give me an episiotomy. How stupid wow, is that? Right. That's and episiotomy is no longer standard of care. We have gotten it eliminated. Well, episiotomy, you know, for those of you who do not know, is a cut in the tissue at the bottom part of the vagina, between the anus and the vagina, with the idea being that if we cut the tissue, it's easier to sew up than if we let it tear. But I personally have been present at lots of births, and I've never seen a woman tear. Yeah, well, so so this is where... So we're going to cut I, you so we don't have to, to... Well, I wouldn't tear anyhow. Why are you cutting me? 
You know, that's kind of right. like saying, well, would you well, cut off your finger so it doesn't get in the way? Excuse me, it's not in the way. Yeah. And and I, I came to real, I mean, I came to see that through my other birds. And um, I, what I think was really important or really interesting, not really important, but really interesting for me was that there was this story that had gone through my life and my listening to my mom and how she had birthed her babies. And so I was working that story out in my first birth. And that was the story was she'd had an episiotomy. You know, there was, there were these certain things. My grandpa had been, you know, he, when he was alive, he was a Western doctor and we got flu shots every year and we, you know, kind of went through that standard care. And, and so I think my first birth was working through those stories. And then it was interesting because the second birth that I, that I arrived at with myself, I, um, I got to heal so many of those things and see how much I appreciated my first birth and, and sort of getting to um, look at that story and have that experience and to go, I can do better this time. And I don't need to carry those fears or those stories into this next one. And, and each time I got better at it. But what's interesting is that the first birth, I was so stubborn that I didn't want anybody's information. I didn't want to seek advice. Um, I didn't actually really know how to be very integrated with women or um, I just didn't have an incredible community of women necessarily. I, and I did have some beautiful stories from my grandmother and from my mother, but it was around my second birth that a, a woman had reached out like just a beautiful witchy mama in my community. And she said, I want to throw you a blessing way. And huh. so I thought, okay, how do I want to go about this? I'd been to my sister-in-law's blessing way. And she said, uh, or I said, okay, I'm going to invite every powerful woman that I know, everyone that I look up to, everyone that I've seen do amazing things in their life. And I want them all to be there. And so I had like 30 women that I knew and I didn't really know them that well, but I, I had met them through um, a couple of different women and, um, and been acquainted to them. But when they came and they honored me and I was this like goddess in this throne and everyone was doting on me and massaging my feet and doing all the things, I felt so supported in that circle and um, that I, I could do anything. And I didn't need, like, it was a new story for me. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of the beginning of the inspiration for the work that I'm doing now, which is to bring as many wise woman ideas and, um, ceremonies and, um, like nourishing, like truly earth nourishing activities and thoughts and, um, support to the women in my community. Well, I think you are really doing that, doing that in your community and reaching out. You're reaching out with your book, The No Time Tango. Do you want to talk about that? 
yeah. So the no tango is, it was sort of like a birthing for myself. It wasn't, it doesn't have anything to do with birth other than like with, you know, this other work that I'm doing. I think it's connected, but um, it's about my conception though and about how I, I went on a trip with my mom and we kind of thought it was just going to be sort of a fun trip. And we went to Italy and we'd saved up money for some years for it. And when we got there, um, there was so much, there was just so much sort of, I think, soul energy that was awakened in our family soul, in, in my mom and my relationship that wasn't able to move. Um, we, were, we were the only two women in our house. I had two brothers that were really, you know, great guys. And my dad was really lovely. And, um, but, but as, as women, like we had this fierceness and my mom is like really, she has a certain power to her. And um, so when we got to Italy, it was like wild and, um, and there, but not wild in the way that we were like sleeping with a bunch of people or whatever, but more like the energy of this old country. And my mom really resonated with that country and the energy there. And we ended up meeting this man that she thought was, um, I don't know, in love with me. And, and I think he was. And um, anyway, the story goes on. We end up coming back. This man comes back with us. And all these things transpire. And he finally flies back to Italy. And then, because, like, this man reminded me of a woman or I mean, of a man that my mom had had an affair with. And then it turned out that that man was my biological father. And it was this really interesting story for me. And I thought, huh. And so I went back to Europe again. And when I was there, I had a really interesting like um, experience with, with a lover there where I found myself so easily able to have orgasms, to like fall in love, to feel like totally in my body. And I realized that my mom's voice wasn't there and my ego wasn't there. My family wasn't there. And that I was like just myself. And it was this huge revelation for me. And then, um, when I came back, I had to write a book because I was so in this, like, partially empowered, but also partially victimized and really angry place with all of it because it had been this big secret for my whole life. And so in the process of writing that book, I was able to look at my, where I had this voice of being a victim. I had um, my mom read my manuscript. And she called me up and she said, I don't know, I don't even know actually what it was about this particular chapter we were talking about or something, but it ended up evoking this conversation with my mom and I. And, and there were these myths and these projections that we had toward each other. And it, it, it opened it up and we talked about it. <laughs> and it took me forever to write this book, right? But I was like, this was worth it for me because now I, 
not only know myself better, but I know her better. And she said, you know, I, I was really disappointed. You didn't invite me to the hospital after you had this, your first baby. And I said, I was so out of it. And I was actually just really afraid that you would be um, like worried about me. And I just didn't, want to feel like you, you were worried about me. And, and that was all, you know, and, and, um, and of course I look back and I go, well, I could have invited her. It wouldn't, it would have been great, but, um, but we got to heal that together. And I think healing that piece of my relationship with my mom has sort of allowed us to be a lot more vulnerable and a lot more honest with each other. And, um, and then it's also helped me become so much more, available to my female relationships in my circles and not competitive or, I don't know, just more open, um, more compassionate with the other women in my life. What a beautiful story, Laura Marie. That's so wonderful. And what Thank a you. brave thing to get that manuscript to your mom. <laughs> right. Well, she was really encouraged. She she encouraged me to write it, though. I think um, I think like it, it's interesting because she wrote a memoir also, and um, and so there was some funny things about how she didn't include that part in the story. And at first, I was kind of mad about it because I was like, "This is like I don't understand why this always has to be shoved under the rug," you know. But then I was like, well, this is my story. <laughs> I get to write this story. This is right. like my conception. Yeah. So I just embraced it in a different way. And, um, and I think she was really grateful in the way that, you know, she didn't have to keep on shoving it under the rug, essentially, right? Because now it's just, it's a piece of art. It's out in the world. <laughs> mm. Is an African saying that you can't heal it until you say it. You can't heal it, right? I agree. I I resonate with that. You you see how that works in your life. Mhm. Mhm. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you teach classes. Is that true? I do. Mm-hmm. I have a and whole kind of things of would class. people learn if they take a class with you and. How would they do that, and how can they get in touch with you? Well, I have a, I have a, quite a few different things that I'm doing. Um, I created a whole schedule this year and whole curriculum of just earth-based, nourishment-based women um, classes and services that I'm available for. So. One of them is a wise woman sex education class, which is available basically 18 to 30, whoever wants to jump in and learn more about their womb wisdom. Um, one of the things that I like think is one of the most amazing tools is to chart your cycle and to do it with moons. So you remember that you're in this rhythm and, um, that actual act of doing that is just so empowering to me and it it creates such a just an interaction with your what's actually happening you know so you're not just sort of going along and 
I don't know, getting caught up in things. It's like it brings you back to this connection with what's hap- what's going on with you. I'm so, noticing um, that we are almost out of time. It's very important oh, yeah. that women know how to get in touch with you. Great. So I have an email address that is the Empowered Woman Nine. So the Empowered Woman is spelled out in the number nine at gmail.com. And I also have a website called the Empowered Woman Site.wordpress.com. And on there, under I believe the home button is a 2019 schedule. And inside that schedule are links to descriptions of my classes and descriptions of other things I do. I'm holding Moon Lodge three more times this year, kind of one for each season, um, and all of those great things. So, I mean, you can check up my website and see all the things that are on there. The Empowered Woman. Either the Empowered Woman site dot WordPress dot com or mm-hmm. the Empowered Woman at Gmail dot com. Is that right? Yep. Okay. That's how we can get in touch with Laura Marie Parker, birth shaman, wise woman, sex educator, empowered woman, community created herbalist, and the author of the No Time Tango, as well as a monthly herbal zine, Tales from a Gypsy Mama. You uh, make me think of Juliet Bersley Levy and her gypsying around with her children. And the way mm-hmm. she supported herself was to write about it. And Laura Marie Parker, the empowered woman, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. Usually I give my guests the last minute. Um, to say something, but we are already in the last minute, and these shows have a real kick to the time. Me, you know, hey, another minute or two, it's no big deal, but I, we don't get it. So I'm going to thank you very, very much for the wonderful work you're doing in reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients and in reestablishing herbal medicine as people's medicine and in bringing nourishing herbal infusions and the idea of nourishment as our medicine. Thank you so much for bringing these ideas to more and more people. Green blessings and good night there, Rebecca. Mm, green blessings. You too. Both you're doing great work, honey. Love you lots. Thank green you. Green blessings Thank and you. good night to Justine and Monica Jean and to every single one of you as well. Green blessings. Good night. Good night, Rebecca. <laughs>